The Gist is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com slash US. It's Monday, June 29th, 2015 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and we begin the show today with names in the news. 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 That's right. Names in the news. Names in the news. That's right. Our first name in the news. All right. Here's the news. Vivu. Vivu is not the name in the news. It would be cool if it were. Vivu. It's a top maker of police body cameras. Now, this is big business. Think about it. I mean, that was the solution to all of the problems we've been hearing. Oh, yes, we'll have body cameras. The company's cameras sell for $900. They're offered with a three-year cloud management service at $2,100. That's per camera. So all these policemen are going to be wearing these cameras. The federal government is providing $75 million in matching funds to law enforcement to buy the cameras. So everyone wants to buy these cameras, right? Well, Vview itself has been bought, and here's the name in the news. It's been acquired by an Ontario, California company named Safariland. You cannot keep this name as the name of a body cam company. Body cams are proposed as a solution to racially motivated aggression. I do not think footage from a Safariland camera will do a lot to quell these complaints. Right? All these stories of a mostly white police force who are outsiders to community of color will begin taping their daily observations via the Safari Land technology. Some chief of police is going to do a news conference where he says, you know what? This was a good shooting. The Safari Land footage will bear this out. Today's top story, man gunned down. See this disturbing footage courtesy of Safari Land. That's got to change. The other thing that's got to change, I think, my opinion, let's go to Greece, where we talk about the Grexit. And one of the things that the Grexit might occasion is a new currency. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, they'll bring back the drachma. The drachma was the currency before they went to the euro. And of course, it's an ancient currency. Actually, did you know that drachmas, because of uh, their symbols that were on the ancient drachmas, there was one called the hippos, which didn't mean hippos, it meant horse. There was one called the owl. That's cool. You could go with that. And before the drachma was the currency of modern Greece, the phoenix was the name of the currency. Now, I think going back to the drachma, it just carries too much baggage with it, right? It just reminds you about the bad old days in Greece. So what can Greece do? What word can Greece come up with that would be inspiring to people, that would tell people that Greece's outlook is a healthy one, that has a whiff of the modern, that's not about looking back into the past, but looking into the future, that also cuts across international boundaries. Ladies and gentlemen, I propose to you that Greece endorses its new currency, the yogurt. On the show today, I go back to Friday to Barack Obama's Charleston speech. I tie it up with the events of the Supreme Court of gay rights of Obamacare. But first, an author, really more than an author, a keen student of history and master of plotting, Brad Meltzer. The Secret Service ain't much of a secret, are they? I mean, we know about their service. So even more secret is the Culpeper Ring, a truly secret society founded by George Washington, whose job it was to uncover plots against the executive. Beecher White is a current-day member of the Culpeper Ring. He is the protagonist of the fictional 
President's Shadow, Brad Meltzer's latest thriller. However, the Culpeper Ring is a real thing, even if historians didn't know about it until the 1930s. In this new book, The President's Shadow, Brad Meltzer relies on history. He always does that. He's the host of two History Channel TV shows. He also relies on a question that has been at the center of a lot of his works of fiction, um, even including when he wrote the Justice League comic books. Brad. Yes. I think... You tell me if you see this too, but I think so much of your stuff, including in this book, including, like I said, the comic books, it deals with this thorny question of powerful people and the dirty tactics they sometimes have to resort to to achieve the greater good. Would you buy that? You're revealing my kryptonite. I mean, this is uh, usually I can pinpoint where the idea for a book comes from, and this one I can't. I woke up with this idea, and that is the First Lady is in the White House Rose Garden. Yeah. And every time I meet a First Lady, they, what strikes me is they all just want normalcy. They want a normal life back, not all the cameras in their face and the press there. And the, this First Lady is in the Rose Garden, and she's just, it's 5 o'clock in the morning. She has a moment to herself. She puts her hands in the dirt just to enjoy herself. She smells the mulch. And out of the dirt of the Rose Garden, she finds a severed arm. And she has no idea how the arm got there. She has no idea how they got past security. She certainly doesn't know the puzzle that's hidden inside the closed fist of that arm. But that was what I woke up with one morning. My wife was like, you're sick, you know, <laughs> SOB to come up with that when that's what you're dreaming about. But the first thing I did is, that's my plot, but I went to the Secret Service and I said, okay, what would you do next? And my friends in the Secret Service said to me, the first thing I'd do is I would renovate a room. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said to me, think of it this way. If I put new wallpaper or paint a room in the White House, I can take the first family out of the White House. Now I can do an investigation. No one's there. The press doesn't know. The public doesn't know and I can do anything I want. And I was like, that sounds like you've done that before. And he said, look at it this way, Brad. He said, Bush, Clinton, Obama, they've all renovated a room during their stay in the White House. You wouldn't believe what's been done here in the name of home renovation. Yeah. And now I was like, OK, I got chapter two. Yeah. Who is the president in these books supposed to be? I mean, listen, I've interviewed, you know, I've, I've met every modern president since I've met Clinton. I've met, I'm trying to think, I've met, yeah, I met 40, George 41, uh, Bush, Met Clinton, met W, met Obama. This president Carter? is. I haven't met Carter. No, I've never met Carter. I got to get Carter if I'm going to complete my baseball card set. I, I got one on you. I, yeah. I went to Emory though. That guy was there all the time. Oh uh, yeah, he yeah. was just like he was like Shaky Jake at Michigan. That's the guy who used to play <laughs> guitar outside the Union. He was like the Shaky Jake. But he'd like take the change, uh, tossed his way, and build a home for a habitat for humanity. I love the way so, he's just okay. yeah, stupid. He used to just come and save people's lives all the time, wasting our time. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good one. Um, so wait, what do you think of Carter? I'm actually fascinated. Yeah, he was. I mean, you get so impressed that this is the president. This is the president. You can't hardly think about I what said, he's saying. You meet a president, you have a story for the rest of your life, yeah. right? And you, you're you in pretty good with George H.W. Bush, right? So the funniest thing is, is last week, I, they invited four authors to come to celebrate Barbara Bush's 90th birthday. And they said to me, you know, we're going to have just four authors. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Who are you getting? They're like, you dummy. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll be there. And at one point, we're in Kennebunkport, and we're in their house. And it's Barbara and George Bush and Jeb and W and the Bush twins and my wife and I, and, you know, some guy rams into my wife by accident, like turns around and just totally elbows her in the back. And she turns around and it's W, you know, yeah. who's like, and I'm like, what, at what point in my life is, is this not real anymore? Because you can't take the moment in completely seriously. So, you know, when they, when I got up to speak in front of everyone, I said, um, you know, it's Barbara Bush's 90th birthday. I said, I just want to say this is exactly like the go-kart party that we had for my seven-year-old, except with less presidents. You know, <laughs> that's it. And I was just happy I got a laugh because it was like, that's the moment where you're like, 
they're either going to yank you and yeah. you're never coming back. But I was happy that. So was, from your time, did you glean anything about the brotherly dynamic between Jeb and George? That's what we all want to hear. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the the brotherly dynamic is any brotherly dynamic, which is like it's loving and it's everything, right? It's good and it's bad and it's beautiful and it's ugly and it's everything. I mean, the fun part is is watching. You know, them jokingly, hopefully, you know, and, and almost ribbingly call him, you know, 45. Uh-oh. And that's the fun <laughs> moment, right? Where you're just like, what? What was that? And you know what? That's when they're human again. And you got to love you got to love that and respect that. But, you know, it's a uh, it's tough. I think it's actually tough. I think if your brother ran for president. Yeah. And, you know, you want to do what's right politically, but you don't want to screw your brother. I mean, the thing that I took away from Bush senior when W was president is, you know, I remember at one point I was in in the house and I was doing research for one of the thrillers and just watch him. He just wouldn't watch, you know, Fox or CNN or anything. He just wouldn't watch any news because they're ripping apart his son. And anyone who has a son or daughter knows, like, can you imagine yeah. your child being ripped apart every day? And um, I think, you know, we, we like to say it's all about politics, but not there. It's about family. And also, if you remember, when George W. Bush ran, he had to ran a, run away from his dad. Right. His dad was I seen mean, as a loser. And Well, I don't want to say it too broadly, but he had lost a re-election bid. And this time, Jeb's in Europe, and he's pointing to the accomplishments of his dad and has to run away from I his mean, brother. I mean, it's amazing, right? You can't, you can't win. If you, yeah. pick one, if you pick one, the other one looks i mean you he, he's in that situation where you cannot win and i will say after the weekend I, and again i know nothing you know i'm gleaning just kind of on that cursory level but i really do believe that there's just it's brotherly love you know barbara bush's best joke is she says all my kids are here that i love they're all here and also George. And it's just, that's a good bit. That's a good bit, you know? And then all the kids get up and they say, my mom always read to us. She's such a great mom. And then George W. Bush gets up and goes, my mom never read to me. And I'm like, it's a good bit back. Like, there's good humor. Like, whatever you want to say, you there's a, it's good it humor. If it wasn't for the unnecessary war of choice, I'd really like right? to I mean, right? That's the thing is, it's amazing what happens when you hear a good joke, yeah. right? When a good joke yeah. comes out of anyone, like, I don't care who you are, like, you can hate whoever you want. When they have a good joke, you got to give credit for the good joke. Right, because then when you're actually seeing them in the room, you respond to them on the level of people, and you know. Not yeah, on that, I, I could person. never, I could never write a president until I met a president. If you really? look at, I wrote a book called the The First Council. Mm-hmm. It was set in the White House about a president's daughter who goes out and has a wild night on the town and gets into trouble. So it's set in the White House. It's a president's daughter. The president has no lines in the book. I don't think he even speaks. Maybe he has one or two lines. I was just terrified of the character. I, I was like, it just seemed like a cliche, like, yes, sir, no, sir. Mm-hmm. It's like having a doctor say stat a lot, stat, yeah. you know, like stat, stat, I need this stat. But when I finally met, I met Clinton first, but he was president at the time, so it's weird because he's obviously the president. But when you meet them outside of the White House, I mean, George Bush Sr. spent the first 10 minutes of my visit with him trying to convince my wife that he invented the phrase, you to man. <laughs> that is an A-plus quality joke, right? Like, that's just a good joke. And I was like, oh, I get it now. You're a human being. Now I can write you. Yeah. And that's when I, I felt like I could finally tackle a president as a character. So who is this guy? Who oh, is this so person? sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think he's, in a strange way, he's all of them. He, I mean, he's the, he's the combination of, of all of them. And, and, and I mean that just in the sense that every president... There and every human being, there's something great and there's something awful and there's something hopeful and there's something selfish. And that's what it took me a long time to figure out. So I don't think he's any, you know, he's not Nixon and he's certainly not, you know, 41 and he's not Clinton. But he's just, you know, he's he he has that that ability to inspire, but also that selfishness that I think it, it you know, you have to have in that moment to convince yourself you're the most important person on the planet. So in researching this book, you also came across some bits of presidential history 
that I want to ask you about. First of all, letters. Presidents write letters to each other. Yes. And what was known... A pr- one of the Bushes sent you the letter? Yeah, so this was great. This was actually for one of the other books I was working on. Um, I had uh, I had found out that Ronald Reagan, before he left office, had written a note to 41 Bush and said to him, wrote him a little secret note that said, don't let the turkeys get you down. Yeah. Put it in the desk right. and left it for, for Bush. And then when Bush left office, left one for Clinton, Clinton left one for W, W left one for Obama, the greatest hidden tradition of the modern presidency. And I was I was writing about the modern day culpa ring that George Washington had his own secret spy ring and what if it existed today? And I so I went to George H. W. Bush and I said, Could you put information in those letters that that you know that you left for Clinton that Reagan left for you? Like that would be a really good it's the one moment where you can, can secretly kind of communicate with mm-hmm. each other. And like, do you think you could pull that off? And there, his response to my email was it was just a note actually from a staffer that just said the president wants you to have this. And I was like, well, what is this? And I clicked the attachment. And he actually sent me the secret note he left for Clinton in the Oval Office desk. And Bush is famous for he copied everything that he had. So he has copies of all of his handwritten notes. You know, he wrote a book of notes and his biographers didn't have this. And he kept it and hid it. And for some reason gave it to me, a fiction writer, which when I got it, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's a secret code in this thing. You know, I was like, I checked to see if it was like a Freemason code. I checked to see if it was the first letter of every word spelled out, I hate you, Bill. You know, I was like, (laughs) what's in this thing? It's incredible. And the truth was, it was just the most generous, heartfelt, like, I'm cheering for you and the whole country is cheering for you. And it just, it was one of those real, and the interesting thing about the letter is the only thing that Bush mentions twice in that letter is the press. Yeah. And you could just tell, even in between those lines, that the toll that the constant beating takes, I don't care how strong and how thick your skin is, uh, every president takes a beating from that press. And you can see it in, in uh, Michelle Obama's comments that are coming out now, right? She's just like, it was killing me in the beginning. You can hear her almost say, I wanted to kill them all and strangle them because it was so hurtful and so hard. And yeah. I think that no one's prepared for that kind of beating. Was it George H.W. Bush who told you the revelation about Reagan carrying a gun? Did you no, find so that this, out No, so I actually found that out from the Secret Service. Huh. So I'm, I'm, I'm researching the president's shadow. And they take me in Secret Service headquarters in downtown D.C. And they have a little um, it's almost like a it's like a museum, really, a tiny little museum of just kind of keepsakes. They have, you know, like a Kennedy dead headline newspaper and, um, you know, replicas of, of guns that have shot at presidents. And they have the car door on when Reagan was shot. So I was like, I'm obsessed with, with the Reagan assassination. Yeah. And that all shows. And that's right. All in the I book, all put it in the book. Right. I wanted yeah, to use it. And so all these details. About right. I, I put these all in the book. Right. I always do that. And so. One of the things I did is uh, they said, you want to hear a really cool one? I'm like, yeah. Well, you know, when the Secret Service says you want to hear a really cool one, pay attention. And the guy says to me, you know, Reagan used to carry a gun. And then the other guy says he did. And and then I'm like, you're, you're kidding. Because first you think it's a joke. And he's like, no, it was a 38. He used to keep it in a briefcase. He used to take it on Air Force One. And I'm like, you must be kidding me on this. And I, again, I don't know why. They, I think the truth is they give me these things because I, because I'm not Bob Woodward, right? I'm writing fiction yeah. and they know I'm not going to use it against them or it's just like this is you want it out and you want it out in a fun way they give it to me and so the first thing I did is I immediately went to 41 to Bush and I said you know did you know about this you know what's the story and I you know I usually ask him questions this was the first time he asked me questions and he was just like tell me more about the gun right did he he actually handle it was a security blanket so so what happened was and this is the interesting part so I wrote about this and and yesterday I got an email from someone else who another third person who said I spoke to Reagan about it and he said that Reagan said to him, 
that he's like, I trust these fellows in the Secret Service, but if another one comes for me, I want to be prepared. If there was another shooting, he wanted to be prepared. And, I, you know, again, that's a little, you know, probably bravado and chest thumping in a cool moment to entertain someone in the Oval. And but it, he, got, yeah, and but it works, man. And Cowboys movies. That's right. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, but 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 you got to be starting in a cowboy movie if you're carrying a gun in the Oval <laughs> Office, right? Like, that. I don't. that's not the chicken or the egg. If, if In fact, in my mind, if Reagan hadn't started in cowboy movies, by that revelation, he would have gotten his own cowboy movies, right? <laughs> like, if you're the sitting president and you carry a gun, you automatically get a cowboy film. Greenlit. All right. Brad Meltzer's new book is The President's Shadow. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, brother. This podcast is sponsored by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, get close, wander more. Stargaze, do it all. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. The wonder of summer event from Volvo. Go to volvocars.com US or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. And now the spiel, eyesight for the blind. On Friday, President Obama gave a wonderful speech, a eulogy in Charleston for Reverend Clemente Pinckney. But it was more than a well-delivered, heartfelt speech. It was an insight into the speaker's character and his strategy. In fact, I think that in Charleston, word, upon being uttered, came close to deed. The setting was grieving family, friends, parishioners, but the broader context was that this speech came at the culmination of President Obama's best week as president. With the passage of a bill that would lead to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with the Supreme Court ruling brushing aside what could have been a crippling blow to Obamacare, and of course with the affirmation of the rights of gay Americans to marry, I think all these events intermingled on that stage in Charleston. So there, Obama stood in front of the mourners three hours into what was a very long day already. He began. Giving all praise and honor to God. Thereby establishing without question that this is part of a religious service. He continued. The Bible calls us to hope. To persevere. And have faith in things not seen things not seen. And this was his theme. James Fallows in The Atlantic pointed out what Obama was doing with his words. He was using them, yes, to comfort, but also to set a pattern, to build a foundation. He began talking about the Reverend Pinckney, a man of God, a man who lived by faith, a man... A man who believed in things not seen. And then Obama quoted, by the end he'd be singing, but he quoted from Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is an amazing song. It was conceived on the deck of a slave ship, lashed by severe winds, by a man who would continue to work in the slave trade for more than a decade. But John Newton remembered the verse, and 25 years after thinking of it, he turned it into a hymn. Now, the hymn is six stanzas long, but the president spoke and sang only the first stanza. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound. Ending with the words, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Blind, but now I see. The president defined grace, the benevolent favor of God, and he said, God has visited grace upon us. 
for he has allowed us to see where we've been blind. And then he turned to the Confederate flag, how so many of us could not see the hurt it was causing. For too long, we were blind to the pain that the Confederate flag stirred in too many of our citizens. Then the president cited the events of the week, as we are no longer blind to the pain the flag caused. We see that now. Then he said, For too long we've been blind to the way past injustices continue to shape the present. But added, Perhaps we see that now. Then turning to guns, the president said, For too long we've been blind to the unique mayhem that gun violence inflicts upon this nation. He ticked off the familiar statistics. So familiar, maybe we've become blind to them. But no, he said, there is evidence the blindness has receded. The vast majority of Americans, the majority of gun owners, want to do something about this. We see that now. Throughout the speech, time and again, We were blind, but now we see. Except the killer. The killer could not see. Twice, he was said to be, quote, blinded by hatred. He could not see the grace in those he shot down. In fact, the president asserted he could not see the grace in any of us. God has visited grace upon us. For he has allowed us to see where we've been blind. I, as a non-believer, do not exactly subscribe to this definition of grace. To me, that definition is a little bit mystical. But as with most religious terms, there's a secular equivalent. And as an adherent of logic, I actually find that to be more satisfying. What is grace but favor? God's favor that he grants us. But this favor can also, I choose to interpret it as ability and possibility. When we say grace before a meal, the Christian will literally thank God. But at an ecumenical table where there's no set grace to be said, you might hear praise of the farmers or the craftsmen or the people who through their ability should be thanked for the meal. Grace is the ability to achieve and the ability to change, including the ability to change your mind. We were all once blind Notions of hateful symbols, ignorant attitudes towards violence were more endemic in our society, but now we see they need not be. Obama wasn't arguing positions that most of us are blind to. He is asserting now on these issues, now we see. And this relates back to the president's week, his accomplishments. He's steady. He's no drama. He's Mr. Turn the Ship Two Degrees instead of 50. But he is always seeing, seeing the right way. Being able to see is an ability we all possess, convincing us to see, and demonstrating that we are now seeing something anew. That's Obama's gift. I suppose if you disagree with him, you think he's arrogant. You think he's overly certain. But if you're someone like Barack Obama, you keep your eye on the prize and define your work as getting others to see what you see. So the day before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King gave a speech about vision. It ended with, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And seconds earlier, he proclaimed, I've seen the promised land. The speech was itself named for the scriptural perch, the mountaintop. And in it, 
King says that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. Last Friday, to a grieving congregation, the president's assurances of sight and promises of hope might have seemed a little closer to possible because there were glimmers of other stars in the firmament. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces The Gist. Joel Meyer is managing producer. And Andy Bowers is executive producer. I want to tell you about a Slate Outward event. It's Monday, July 13th at the City Winery in New York. Join the writers and editors of Outward, which is Slate's LGBTQ blog, as they discuss the impact of the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage. That impact is it will legalize same-sex marriage. They'll also discuss other topics. They will get into nuance. We're talking about J. Brian Lauder, Mark Joseph Stern, and June Thomas from the Outward blog. They'll be joined by guests Evan Wolfson, the attorney considered by many to be the architect of legal same-sex marriage, and Ted Allen of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and the Food Network shows Chopped and All-Star Academy. He'll be talking about gay stereotypes in the media. Plus, audience members will get the chance to pose their very own Ask a Homo questions. Be in the audience for Outward Live Monday, July 13th at City Winery in New York. For tickets, go to slate.com slash NYC Outward. Slate Plus members get 30% off their ticket purchase. That's slate.com slash NYC Outward. Today is a Monday. That means it's a They Might Be Giants Day. They Might Be Giants. Dial a song number is 844-387-6962. But now a debut. Actually, it's a repeat, but it's in honor of some of those things the Supreme Court, at least five of them, said. This was a song originally from the HBO documentary A Family is a Family is a Family, which was celebrating family diversity. The name of the song and mom and kid. So many combinations, so many combinations, so many, so many combinations, so many combinations, and mom and dad. 